Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Ariel Levy i samtal med Lin Ullman. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Särgelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Ariel, I see that we're going to have a problem here. Who's the journalist? I know. <laughs> yep, because you are a journalist. Can't and help so myself. Am I, and I want to say welcome. Thank you. I am so happy that you came all the way from New York uh, to talk to us. And I am so happy to have had the privilege of reading your book, which was immensely moving. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to talking to you about it today. Um, there's there's a little quote in the book. Um, you say something about my competent self mm. is doing the talking, and my bewildered self is being addressed. Because you 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 write about uh, in the very beginning uh, that sometimes you talk to yourself. Yeah. And that there's the two voices. Yeah. And it's the competent voice and the bewildered voice. Yeah. I mean, I w- I was. I'm an only child, so I was um, weird. Like with, the, I was didn't understand how to socialize for a long time. So I think I kind of had this like conversation with myself. I mean, in more than one way. Part of it was like my confused, bewildered self and my competent self saying, sort of taking myself by the hand and saying, "Okay, we're going to go to school, and we're not going to get upset if." no one talks to us, like, you know, making yourself a little friend. And I think that's some of what writing's about, is having a conversation with yourself, even if it's not about yourself, even if it's not first-person work. It's a conversation with your reader, but first it's a conversation with yourself. It's your figuring out how to talk in your own head. I thought very much about those two voices when I was reading this book, that it's almost as if they're there Mm -hmm. all the time, that there's this 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 struggle or this um this conversation mm-hmm. between the very strong rebellious um narrator mm-hmm. and a very very vulnerable narrator yeah. i mean that these are there all the time would you w- were those two voices there when you were writing i mean was that is that part of the writing Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think so much of what I'm describing in this about sort of, you know, I had this fantasy since I was a kid that I wanted to I I wanted to be a writer partly because I thought it was the profession that went with the kind of woman I wanted to become. And that was a woman who was free to do whatever she chooses. You know, I just had a very romantic idea about that, about being free in that way. So i think part of what this book is about is the conflict between really like a compulsion to thrust myself towards adventure and to try to be brave. And then, you know, a scared part that's like, why am I on this airplane? How am I going to report this story? I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what I'm doing. And just the two of them, you know, duking it out forever. (laughs) I think what's wonderful about the book is that these... These voices or these impulses are there all the time. It's not like one wins over the other. It doesn't. The vulnerable one doesn't win, and oh, here is you know, I'm all vulnerable or I'm all strong. It's ju- they're just there all the time, and that w- that makes it very compelling, very human. 
I think it's, I think as far as I know, that's a human, like a fundamental human struggle is the, on the one hand, the desire for adventure and novelty and excitement. And on the other hand, the thing that the, that the less confident self wants, you know, which is domesticity and security and intimacy, which you don't have to be um, f afraid to want. Everybody wants intimacy. Can you read a little bit just from the beginning? Absolutely. But I can't, oh no, I know now where the I got very, it. Very okay. Yeah. Do you ever talk to yourself? I do it all the time. We do it, I should say, because that's how it sounds in my head. When I'm following a map, for instance, we are going to turn right on Vicolo del Leopardo, go past the bar with the mosaic tiles, and then we know where we are. It's an old habit. We are going to look the teacher in the eye and tell her it's not fair. <laughs> my competent self is doing the talking. My bewildered self is being addressed. We're going to go over to the phone now and call for help with one hand and hold the baby with the other. For the first time I can remember, I cannot locate my competent self. One more missing person. In the last few months, I have lost my son, my spouse, and my house. Every morning, I wake up, and for a few seconds, I'm disoriented, confused as to why I feel grief seeping into my body. And then I remember what has become of my life. I'm thunderstruck by feeling at odd times, and then I find myself gripping the kitchen counter, a subway pole, a friend's body, so I won't fall over. I don't mean that figuratively. My sorrow is so intense, it often feels it will flatten me. It's all so over the top. Am I, an am I in an Italian opera, a Greek tragedy, or is this just a weirdly grim sitcom? A few weeks ago, my neighbors came by my house on Shelter Island. They wanted to meet the baby. He's dead, I had to tell them. I felt bad, because what are they supposed to say to that? They said, we're so sorry. They said, soon it will be summer, and you can work in your beautiful garden. Not exactly, I explained. We have to sell the house. I'm here to pack up. I know, those poor people. They were silent as they searched for something safe to land on, and then they asked where my spouse was. I didn't have the heart to tell them. <laughs> um, the book is heartbreaking, and I want you to tell us the premise for it or, or you know, tell us what it's about. But sure. it's also, and it's, it's good to tell people that. I mean, it's also very funny. I, I mean, it's funny and heartbreaking at the same time. It's allowed to laugh. I mean, even yeah. here, no, it's, 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 it's okay. actually, it's, it's, you know, it's horrible, but it's, you, you say, I, I didn't have the heart to tell them because this thing that happened in the book is, yeah. you know, the, 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 the tremendous loss that happens and that is the premise of the book. Because as I was saying, it did seem over the top. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like what happened was when I was five months pregnant, I went on a reporting assignment for the New Yorker magazine where I work uh, in Mongolia. And the second night I was in Ulaanbaatar, I went into labor in my hotel room and I gave birth in the bathroom. Um, and for 10 minutes, I was somebody's mother. And the baby died before the ambulance came. Um, which incidentally would have happened anywhere in the world. That happened two weeks after I got back, my spouse of 10 years left for rehab. 
And then there was all sorts of revelations about debt and whatnot. It became clear we had to sell the house. So you see why it was just like one thing after the next. I was like, what is going to, what horrible thing is going to happen next? Like what's, where does this stop, you know? So that it was like a period of time where it felt like there was like a tidal pull, like sucking my life, the good parts, out to sea. We're going to come back to um, that and um, Mongolia. You you wrote an essay about it yes. called Thanksgiving in Mongolia, yes. uh, which was in the New Yorker, yeah. and that later became the book. Yes, but. Uh, and and the essay in Mongo uh, the essay uh, in New Yorker is strictly about losing your child, or you losing the baby it's on the bathroom floor. It's strictly about that, but I think it's also framed in terms of some of the things we've been talking about in terms of the conflict between wanderlust and this desire. My initial ambivalence about having a child because I wanted to keep doing what I was doing because I just found it really exciting and gratifying, and I just thought being a mother would make your path calcify in front of you in ways that I was unwilling to accept. And then at a certain point when I was 37, it just clicked into place. I just, that no longer seemed like a problem. It just seemed like motherhood was the greatest adventure of all and I wanted to have that adventure. And I was, I was also, I was tired. I was tired of being governed by my own desires. I wanted to put someone else first. The the book is is about uh, your upbringing and your marriage, mm -hmm. uh, so it it's in that way it's it's bigger than the the essay and mm -hmm. but about these same things that yes. you're talking about. Um, it's also very much a love story. I mean, it is a story about many different variations and forms yeah. of loss, but also many forms of love. Right. Uh, First, I mean, you, s you you have a wonderful portrait, and I love this about uh, your mother. Yeah, your who's mother. here with me on this trip? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I mean, because she's she's the kind of mother who says, "Who?" Where's that quote? She says something that she she's never once been surprised when I accomplished something. Yeah, and I just thought that was such a beautiful thing to write of a mother and to also write about a mother. She's not surprised when you accomplish something. No, it's weird. She really... <laughs> it's, it's always lovely. been like that. It's a weird thing. I also, sometimes I think, I wonder if I would have been a writer if it hadn't been that. Like, when I was a kid, with no basis, I mean, I would be like, I'm going to be a writer. My mom was like, I know. <laughs> of course. And it's, in retrospect, I'm like, what, why did you think that was true? But anyway, it's a big gift. You know, I mean, if you're like many people, many people will say, I mean, I've heard from other adults like, oh, that's not a, prof you no, you won't. That's not a real profession and no not everyone gets to do that and you won't get to do that. But it's like if your mom told you, yeah, you will, you're like, okay, I know something you don't know, I will. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, yes, my mother was extremely encouraging of me as a writer, even before that was reasonable. And what's so wonderful about how you portray your mother, which goes in the whole sort of the, 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 
the book with the, you know, when you write about you being either the vulnerable voice or the competent voice, yeah. but you also write about your mother and you write about her a lot through cooking. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the obligatory cooking, sort yeah. of the day-to-day cooking and the festive cooking. So yeah. again, and we get this whole portrait of the mother through when, you know, in the family there's the festive cooking and when there's the obligatory cooking. So again, it's it's these two, two what would you say, two powers or two forces or... I mean, I, I suppose... In your life, in yeah. your upbringing. It's, it's like what you were saying about, I mean, how, like when the worst things in your life are happening and you find yourself making a joke in your head or something, you know, it's like no one's just one thing, right? I mean, we're all balancing out our different sides, I think, all the time, as far as I can tell. But it's beautiful because the, uh, the whole portrait is through, you know, different types of of the of cooking and yeah. what she cooks and it's it's just a lovely and then you get a whole upbringing and a whole story yeah yeah um well we are eaters <laughs> in my family um we do eat a lot of food and i mean also you know th- her mother's in this book too who's still alive she's never gonna die and how old is she, she what is she 96 i think now i think no she just turned 95 um, but it doesn't matter. She'll never die. Um, <laughs> and part of the reason the title is what it is, is the rules do not apply. I was thinking about how the strictures that govern my mother's life and certainly her mother's life were not, a f- were not a factor in the same way for me. No one ever said to me, you have to get married. You have to have children. That's, that's what women do. That's not what I was told, and that's just such a different reality. Um, And the other thing I was thinking about with the title was just that, you know, having that, and this again is very much about my parents, you know, who were this generation in the United States who sort of questioned hierarchy and, and said, you know, we don't have, just because something has always been a certain way doesn't mean it always has to be that way. And that thinking, that, that curiosity, that, that courage to, question what's been handed to you, I think is what's behind a lot of really productive progress in, in, in the whole world, but certainly in the United States. That's what brings you the first black president. That's what brings you the advent of same-sex marriage. But where it intersects on a Venn diagram, that idea of I don't, I, the rules do not apply, I think it can intersect with something I noticed in myself and my peers, which was this sense that we could have everything we wanted, that there were no limits, and that if you were dogged and strategic, you could have everything you chose without sacrificing much. And I figured out that's not the case. <laughs> Although, is, are, it, would you consider your book, or I've seen texts about the book, articles uh-huh. about the book, that it is a kind of and even criticism of the book, uh, and I disagree with it, that it's a cautionary tale, that it's a, almost an anti-feminist book because that it's, you know, that you've said, well, look, you can't have it all. Uh, I thought I could have it all as a woman. I thought I could do everything uh, as a woman, but I couldn't. Yeah. And, and I've seen some younger writers, some younger female writers being very upset by this uh, and saying, 
but but why is she saying this? Uh, what's your response to that kind of idea that the book is a cautionary tale? Right. First of all, it's it's not a cautionary tale because for it to be a cautionary tale, I'd have to be saying be careful, or you could end up like me. And I think it's it's great being like I think I have a really lucky life. So this is what's to be cautious of. It's great. Furthermore, my what I think is ridiculous about that take on it is that I, I think that the idea that you can have every single thing you want, mm -hmm. that you're entitled to everything in life, that's not the thinking of a feminist. That's the thinking of a toddler. And there's no, <laughs> very good. no one can show me the feminist text that said you can have everything. It doesn't exist. That's not Feminism. Feminism doesn't say you can have everything. Feminism says, as a woman, you are a full human being. And as it happens, the human condition is that everybody doesn't get everything. And, and I don't think that's about women. I think, I think maybe what's where that has gotten like that is because, you know, it's, pretty, it's relatively recent in the history of Western society that women were real actors in outside the home, outside the domestic sphere. So we're not used to women having a public discussion about what all they want. So it sounds like we're talking about a women's issue, but actually it's everyone's issue. It's just men have been talking about this forever. I, I absolutely agree with you. And it's not, uh, I, I read another review that said something like, every woman should read this book. I mean, it was meant as a compliment, but I thought, I gave this book to my husband and he loved it. I mean, it's, it's, it's I think, Every man should read this book too. I mean, I love that idea. It's not a. I don't know how many women are here, but um, <laughs> if they would agree, I would agree. But it's also um, it's also a, a book about grown-up love, yeah, about, um, and about a marriage, uh, and about the losses that come in that marriage. Mm -hmm. um, I read it very much as as a love story yeah. between you and and the the woman in the book mm -hmm. who's called Lucy mm -hmm. in the book. Yeah. That's yeah. a pseudonym. Yeah. Yeah. Um did you write it also as a love story? You know, I think I so wrote it for a, a number of reasons. I mean, partly the, the short answer is yes. I mean, the short answer is just because your marriage ends doesn't mean you stop caring about someone. And I think I was trying to figure, I mean, some of this was just trying to having a conversation with myself about how did all this occur? Like where, how did, how did this occur? And how did it, how did I get from the place I described to you at the beginning where it just felt like this is an unfolding disaster without a without a stopping point, to what it ended up feeling like, which was, I can accept this, and the upside of all this is being liberated from the illusion of control, which has felt like a relief. What do you mean by that? And why was there an, was there an upside? And what do you mean by, by what you just said? I mean that what we've been talking about, this thing that, you know, whether it's women or men or whoever, the, the, the miss perception that nothing will have to be compromised, you know, which I think is, it's, very, it's more than anything, I think it's a young person's misconception that, that 
you can just keep going and you won't, nothing will get sacrificed. I think there's like a young person's conception I'm writing about that it's like not understanding that when you choose one thing, you necessarily don't choose something else. And that that's not always, there's not always going to be a story of consolation about that. That can be really sad, you know? And I mean, I think like in the beginning, the part I was reading you, I would wake up every day and just think, no, I don't, I don't accept this. I don't accept that my baby's dead. I don't accept that my spouse is an addict. I, I, I refuse this reality. And I woke up like that enough days in a row and it sort of dawned on me that whether I accepted it or not, this reality was going to remain fixed. So I had to find a way to live with it. And the way I found to live with it was first of all by sort of surrendering, but second of all by thinking, okay, so what, what do I get? What do I get, to, what isn't taken away? Because of course I didn't lose everything. I got to still be a writer. You know, like I, that's this thing I had been trying to have happen, I'd been pushing myself for for 20 years and no one was gonna take it away. And I also felt like the, ex even though my situation has its specifics and there was addiction and there was adultery, this and that, I found the experience of losing a marriage, my overwhelming feeling about it was, I'm bad at love. I'm bad at love. And that's the worst thing a human being could be bad at. And the way I got through that was by thinking, that's only one kind of love. Like you said, the book is about lots of different kinds of love. I have these friendships that have been around for 30 years, that's love. My family is another kind of love. This one love isn't gonna stay. What do you mean by being bad at love? That sounds harsh to me. Well, that, I mean, that I, was your conclusion. I bet or that is the conclusion of the book. It's not, it, I don't think that now. No. But that's what you thought then? That's what I thought then. I mean, I felt, what, I just felt like that? I had failed. I mean, I, th I think that that's pretty common, the experience of a marriage falling apart is just a sense of enormous failure. And I, that's how I felt. I just felt like I had failed at being a wife and I had failed at being a mother. And obviously a lot of that's irrational. Like you don't, you don't, f having a late term miscarriage, you don't pick that. It's not a, it's not a punishment. It's bad luck. That's all it is. A marriage is something else. When your marriage falls apart, there's no way it's not partly your own fault. I mean, there's no way you did nothing wrong. You know? So all of these... Or it's no. unlikely. No. <laughs> I find. I'm thinking about this Mary McCarthy essay where she's talking about how um, there, was a, there was a trend of, of um, former communists at this time announcing their, their conversion experiences. And she wrote, I'll rem I remember the line, she said, you know, my experience cries out in protest against theirs. Because what she's saying is, you know, these, these moments in life where you make choices that change things mm -hmm. in a big way for the better or the worse, you don't necessarily realize that's what you're doing when you're doing it. It happens, you can't always tell that that's what's happening. And it's only when you look back that you think, oh, that didn't happen to me. I was a part of that happening. I think that's done uh, beautifully in the book, that everything of, 
a real consequence that happens in the book is foreshadowed almost as a part of a sentence or as a little, you know, not just a couple of words before it actually happens. So it, it and, it, and it, it speaks to what you were just saying, that the choices we make, it's not like, you know, that we have a big uh, piece of paper that says, you know, here, I'm making this very important choice. And they're not all choice. I mean, that's the other well, thing. I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about in terms of feeling like what all this did was pull away some of my illusions of control because it occurred to me, you know, this wasn't, it, I think that as a, as a writer in particular, you get used to the power of authorship. You get used to, it's not an illusion that you have control, you have control. Even if you're a nonfiction writer, you're sculpting a narrative to mean what you want it to mean. And I'm sure it sounds a little bit ludicrous, but I don't think I really understood the extent to which, like, that's not life. It's not, you don't get to decide in that way what you're going to be handed. And I, that's not a bad thing. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I'm not sure why, every, why that should be so scary. I guess it is scary because then it means you, you, have, to, you have to admit that you're not in charge of everything but it's, I think it's an important and can be a freeing thing to do. You, you talk about writing or you write about writing a lot in the book. The book is a lot about yeah. writing and also what you're saying now. But you're saying actually that now you've learned. Is that true that, that in writing you have control but in life you don't have control? I mean, are you really that sort of clear on well, this? I mean, no. Because I'm older than you, and I'm I have that stuff all mixed up still. I think it's a life's work, isn't it? it yeah. You know, figuring out what you can control and what you can't, and and because being okay with you know surrendering. Because writers to are that. usually control freaks, and you. But are you not anymore? I know that I was ever a control freak. I just had a misperception of how much I could get. You know. So you're. You write very heartbreakingly and honestly about living with an addict, which is certainly something that is um, an altered state, and you write about it as an altered state. It's something that you... And you write about it as seeing your beloved or your spouse, sort of she's there, but she's not there. Or yeah. You, and, and, you, and you keep... Because at one point in the book... She's not drinking, or she's supposedly not drinking, right. and there are all these clues. Yeah. Um, and you keep thinking she's, you know, she's acting funny. Is she sick? Is she ill? Is she tired? Is she? I mean, you know, they're all the hints are all over the place. And yeah, I mean, it wasn't funny at the time, but it's funny as I sit here to think of how I was like, I have Lyme disease. Does she have a brain tumor? Like, what is going on? It's like, no, you idiot. She's drunk. <laughs> you know? And, I mean, she laughs about it. We laugh about it. It's, it, it's ludicrous. I mean, that's... But that's... I think that's one of the hardest things of loving an addict is that you, ha you, you start to distrust your own interpretive powers, which, again, if that's what you do for a living, it's like, you know, I pride myself on my interpretive powers. And when you love someone and you're like, something's wrong, I can see it. And they say to you, 
no, uh-uh, it, that's, you're mistaken. Then you think, well, maybe I am mistaken. And I mean, a thing a guy said at a Al-Anon meeting once, and they say a lot of ridiculous things at Al-Anon meetings, don't get me wrong. There was, I but just say what an oh, Al-Anon meeting is. I'm sorry, so it's, it's a thing you go to for spouses or parents or children. It, it's people who love an addict, basically, and it's a meeting you can go to. And, you know, the, so there's people say a lot of ridiculous things. So I was, the first time I went, I was sort of sitting there being like, I don't think I can sit through this because people are using words so weirdly. But then this guy said, you know, denial is like sleeping. You don't know you're doing it when you're doing it. And I just thought that was the best description of what it's like to be in denial. Like, yeah, that's exactly it. So you go to, you, 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 you both decide that you're going to have a baby. Yeah. And you have a father on board also yes. who's going to be a father figure in, sorts, in the yeah. baby's uh -huh. life and who will pay for college even. I mean, yeah. everything is sort of, everything is set. Everything is, you know, and Lucy is supposedly not drinking. Yeah. You have your home. You have this I've father got figure, it on track. and you're yeah. five months pregnant, and working at the New Yorker, and and this opportunity to do a story in Mongolia comes up, yeah. and you go to Mongolia. Yeah, and I mean, I know it sounds like a big deal, oh. but you know, oh. I asked a doctor. A doctor said, "Oh, it's fine." So I said, "Okay." I mean, I. I just believe in science. So when a doctor says that's fine, I think that's fine. But it sounds bad, do you know? So it was easy to feel really guilty and self-recriminating when it went belly up. Do you know what that means? Do you know that expression? It means screwed up, screwed Although up. Although I think that when you read this from almost a Scandinavian point of view, it doesn't really sound that bad to go somewhere in your fifth oh, month. Oh, really? But in the book, it's something that you go back and forth on. Uh-huh. There is a guilt, or there's a sense of guilt there, or there's a, or, or other people's yeah. reactions. Yeah. I mean, personally, I don't think You're like, that What's going, the big deal? going yeah. pregnant on an airplane when you're five months pregnant is not, but, but in the book, there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of, uh, pressure or or and you and you and you write very eloquently and and also kind of humorously about you know all the sort of ideas around being pregnant and what mm. you should do and that you you're in opposition to this so it's the rebellious you that sort of also goes to Mongolia. I mean, y yeah. you talk about, you know, everyone who's all organic and not doing this and not well, doing I that, not doing this and you, you didn't want to buy any of this all pregnancy Lethargy. I mean, I bought a lot of, I didn't like the vibe around it. I just thought there was something so... The vibe so around pregnancy? Yes. There was you something like it. so... I loved pregnancy. I just thought it was the coolest thing in the world that there was like a person in me. I just thought it was the most interesting thing there could be. I didn't like what seemed to me like a lot of fussy, yuppie nonsense around like you know, oh, be so careful, don't drink that cup of coffee. It's like, just calm down. People have been doing this since the beginning of time. Like, yeah, eat healthy, but don't be a lunatic about it. You know, that was my attitude. Um, and then, of course, you know, I did feel guilty and self-recriminating, but I've since 
learned since the essay came out and the book came out, and I've spoken to hundreds or maybe at this point thousands of women who've had stillbirths or miscarriages or, you know, somehow lost a baby, I have yet to speak to a one of them who didn't feel guilty. Mm. I think it's part of mm. that package. Why? I think some of it is hormonal. I think the oceanic hormonal experience of giving, of giving birth and what happens. You know, I think if you're lucky and your child lives, you have a little person you need to keep alive and that's distracting. So you can't focus fully on that. When the baby dies, you're in this state. You have milk coming out of your breasts and there's no baby there. So there's nothing. I mean, it's just like, it's not, a, it's not good. And it's, and it's easy to feel that it's your fault, I think, partly because to admit that it's not your fault is to admit a lack of control, is to admit that anybody can die anytime. And I think that's a hard thing to do. Was the writing of this book and the essay that preceded it in any way, uh, was it a way to... Um, was writing a form of mourning? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And I think that I love the way you put it. Because what people ask me a lot was, was it a form of catharsis? And it doesn't, that doesn't feel like an accurate statement. But a form of mourning, yes. And I, and I also think that, you know, something I see my friends do or I do with them with their children, there's so much gazing at them because it's just incredible. They're these like little actual human beings that they made with their bodies and they tend to look really nice. Like it takes a while before people get ugly. You know, they all, everyone looks, <laughs> you know what I mean? Even like you see pictures of really ugly people when they were little kids and you're like, I don't know, you look adorable. But my point is there's so much gazing at children and these people that you make. And I didn't get to do that. I got to do it for 10 minutes and it was a transcendent 10 minutes, but then he's gone. So I think writing about it was in some ways my way of gazing, of being like this person existed. I know it for a fact, I saw him. And there, it felt in some way important to me to announce that. And I and I would be lying if I said that this was like my motivation. I mean, I wrote this because I wrote it, because I write things. But I was able to feel slightly self-righteous about the whole thing because, about this one aspect of it, because there's not a lot written about this. And there's not a lot of depictions in art or film. There's not a lot about this. And when I say this, I mean specifically in this case miscarriage. But when you think about it, when you think about many of the experiences of being like a human female animal and menstruation, menopause, pregnancy, birth, fertility, and for all that stuff, that's actually like really a big deal in the lives of half the human population. It's not a huge thing in art and literature. And it seemed to me to be a matter of feminism to say this is a legitimate subject for writing. Why, why is this, you know, why, shouldn't, why should this be private? Why should this be a secret? This happened. This was the biggest thing that had happened in my life. Why wouldn't I write about it is how I felt. 
Also, um, another thing that's not huge in in literature, or but that people are writing more about now, is is the whole idea of of new family constellations. I mean, because you were making a family with your spouse, another woman. So mm -hmm. I mean, this book is also about gender, and you were you were sort of trying to find or navigate between you know being you know. What what was revolutionary about your you know your union and what was just very traditional about right. it? It seemed that you two together, as you describe it, yeah. were constantly sort of navigating uh, between again these two ideas of what how to have a family, how to have a marriage. Because at one point you say, somebody asks you, well, how is your wife? And you say. You know, I'm the wife. Yeah. You're the wife. I'm the girl. Yeah. She's the one who fixes the cars. Right. I'm the one who, you know. We had a very traditional relationship. I mean, in terms of gender roles. I mean, other than the detail that we were both female. Like, we, that was, it was just, I, there's more than one way to be gay. I mean, it's just that our relationship was very straight in many ways. You know, it just was. I mean, it just, just was. Can you read a little bit more? Yes. I want you to read. Um, it would be so good. To, first time I read your book, I actually heard it on, on, on book on tape. Yeah, you're reading it yourself. Yeah, I read which it. Which was beautiful. So um, it was kind of exciting to read. I, I don't know. I'd never done it before. I was. It was interesting. Sorry. I mean, it's just an aside. <laughs> so I had your voice for several days in my head. But um, yes, and, and if you set the stage here, this is when after Mongolia, you've just come home and everything. Yeah. I mean, you've lost your child yeah. and you're losing your, yeah. your spouse. It wasn't, it wasn't the greatest. Um, when I got back from Mongolia, I was so sad I could barely breathe. I couldn't sleep. When I was alone, I made sounds that I never knew could come out of me. You'll have another one, my father told me, desperate, crying himself. No, I want that one. It was the savage truth. I had a longing, ferocious, primal, limitless, crazed, for the only person I had ever made. The sleeping almonds of his eyes, the graceful wings of his ribcage, his living, moving arms his soul. I had wanted to experience unconditional love, what Mary had described in Jerusalem, not the mother of Jesus Christ, this woman I had met. So, I mean, it's just what her name was. <laughs> anyway, uh, I had wanted to experience unconditional love, what Mary had described in Jerusalem. It is ordained, it can never be otherwise. A love that came from somewhere beyond my brain, beyond my ego. Here it was, a wild feeling from the deepest part of me, as deep and dark as the will to survive for someone whom I alone had known during his whisper of a life. We were blood. Grief is another world. Like the carnal one, it is a world where reason doesn't work. Logically, I knew that the person I'd lost was not fully formed, that he was the possibility of a person. But without him, I was gutted. 
If my baby could not somehow be returned to me, excuse me, nothing would ever be right again. This bitter winter would go on forever. There was something wrong with the Lucy who'd picked me up at JFK. Her eyes were untenanted, but I couldn't stay focused on it because it was just intolerable, everything. Late one night, I woke suddenly when I felt myself bleeding, not just between my legs, but also from my nipples. When I turned on the light, I realized that it was milk, not blood, coming out of me. It seemed like sadness was leaking out from every orifice. I cried ferociously and without warning, in bed, at the grocery store, sitting on the subway. I could not keep the story of what had happened inside my mouth. I went to buy clothes that would fit my big body, but that didn't have bands of stretchy maternity elastic to accommodate a baby who wasn't there. I heard myself tell a horrified saleswoman, I don't know what size I am, because I just had a baby. He died, but the good news is, now I'm fat. <laughs> On five or six occasions, I ran into mothers who had heard what had happened, and they took one look at me and burst into tears. Once, this happened with a man. Well-meaning women would tell me I had a miscarriage too, and I would reply with unnerving intensity, he was alive. Often, after I told them that, I tried to get them to look at the picture of the baby on my phone. Of course, I was not supposed to say the baby. I wasn't supposed to even think it. He was not someone who slept and played. We did not have routines. He had not established established preferences or facial expressions. But the statement, I had a miscarriage, did not feel like the truth. Euripides wrote, what greater grief can there be for mortals than to see their children dead? That was more like it. Am I allowed to say, my son? Was it not a statement of fact that I had given birth on the bathroom floor of the Blue Sky Hotel in Mongolia and watched my son live and die? Everywhere I looked, there were pregnant women. A gaudy show, repulsive. I don't feel that way anymore. If you're pregnant, I don't think you're repulsive. Thank you. Um, this, is, uh, this is a memoir. It's not a novel. I mean, it's a memoir. Uh, you are writing about yourself, and then you... You have book tours, you're out here, you're here, you're talking yeah. about these things, and you're talking about you and and Lucy mm -hmm. and your parents. And mm -hmm. I mean, there are debates in Scandinavia, there's debates about, you know, how, what can you write about real people, or what, sure. why, you know, this whole... Um, what are your thoughts about that, and how do you negotiate that with you and your and the people around you I think it's really complicated Why? I think it's really complicated because like with Lucy for example I asked permission I mean she read it before I turned it in and I said if there's anything you can't live with I'll take it out and she very generously and very characteristically said this is your story I'm not going to censor it um but so, so technically, I'm off the hook there. But morally and emotionally, I'll never know if it was really okay. Like, to, to, because 
this is my story, this is my truth. It's not hers. I mean, this isn't, if, if she wrote it, it would be total. you know, she, it's very different for her, but this is the one that gets read because she's not a writer. So I don't know. I, I'll never know if that was, I'll never know about that. But she was the only one I worried about. I mean, like with my family, I mean, it's like, if you tell your kid from the time she's three, like, you're going to be a writer, it's like, well, <laughs> what do you think is going to happen? Um, and I, I mean, I did sort of say like, okay, I'm doing this, you guys. And you knew I was going to eventually. So let's just do it now. And then we can relax and like digest our food in peace for the rest of our lives. But with Lucy, I don't know. And that's the truth. Was there an option not to write the story for you? I mean, well, would there you wasn't an option not to write it, but there's no. always an option not to publish. Right. You know. Really? I mean, good question. Uh, uh, yes and no, right? Because this is what I do for a living. I mean, this is how I eat food. But like also, I mean, that's an interesting question. You, I mean, uh, would you have written something and not... I mean, isn't part of writing something actually wanting it yes. to be read? Of course it is. Absolutely, yes. I don't. There wasn't a world in which I wouldn't write this. No. There's a world in which if she had said this or this or this, I can't have it. I would have taken that out, you know? I would have taken out specific things. That, that I would have done. This, we're gonna, this book is, is so much about writing. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's about the process of writing, about the complications of writing, and, and, and also the, the, the collaborative work of writing, mm. which is not so often written about, you know, working with an editor. Yeah. You write about that a lot. Yeah. Um, why was writing about writing in this book, so, uh, why is it such a big part of the book? Such a good question. Because I do think you're right that this is a book about loss, but in order to have loss, you have to have love, or, 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 or you haven't really lost anything, have you? And writing was this thing that I loved that wasn't going to get lost, that was mine alone, you know? And that's actually, I mean, I say in here that when I was pregnant, I remember thinking, soon I will have made something that I love more, that I'm, that I'm more proud of, that I love more than whatever I've ever written, you know? And I didn't get to keep that. So what I, but I got to keep this. So it's, so it, it felt very important to me to talk about that, talk about this thing that I love that meant a lot to me that I got to keep. And that sustained me. I mean, I don't know what would have happened I don't know what I would have done if I didn't have this to do. And by this, I don't mean this book. The first year after I got back from Mongolia, I wasn't writing this. I was writing journalism. I was writing articles for The New Yorker. Left and right. I remember I got back and my editor, Nick, was like, this is going to be the best year of your career. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's insanity. I'm, I'm going to go crawl under a rock. And I didn't. He was right. I, I, it was so unpleasant to be me that it was like much better to just go and write about other people's lives. And it was a, and it was a weirdly great year for stories. Like that, I got lucky that year with stories. Like I, 
that year I wrote about Diana Nyad, who was the first person to swim from Cuba to Florida. And she did it when she was 64, and she'd been trying for 30 years. And I mean, she almost died trying to do it. It was just so fascinating to me. And that year I met and I wrote about Edie Windsor, who was the plaintiff in the Supreme Court case in America that made uh, same-sex marriage legal. And she was just a fire. She just died. I'm really sad that she's gone. Uh, but I, I just got lucky. There was a lot, there were a lot of stories that came my way that first year that were really engrossing and that were about people who were, like, talk about, I mean, the, one of the things I write about is, you know, women living unconventional lives, women mm -hmm. who, are, who have made these lives where it seems like they're free to do whatever they choose. So they were inspiring to me. Although the point of the book is sort of that nobody's free to do whatever they choose, that nature is the only entity that's free to do whatever it chooses. What does that mean? Just say a little more about that. It just means, <coughs> it just means death. That's all it means. It just means mortality. It just means you don't know when you're going to die, when your kid's going to die, when no one gets out alive. And I think that understanding that in a deeper way is what it means to become a grown-up, right? I mean, or a privileged grown-up, right? I mean, if you're living in a country where people are dying left and right, you know that right away. But I didn't. I didn't really get it. I think we're going to end it there. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. <laughs>